Well, welcome to another edition of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. And uh, Cam's been teaching uh, an advanced sheep and goat nutritional school, or nutrition school, or nutrition class, I guess it is. And uh, I attended that, and since I don't have any advanced sheep, uh, it's not going to do a lot of good for me, I'm afraid. Right. <laughs> I just have regular sheep. <laughs> yeah, and I certainly can't take credit for it. It wasn't even my idea in the first place, but uh, you Melanie Barkley there, a long-time uh, extension educator in, in Penn, well, the Penn State Extension System, Pennsylvania, uh, operating as their one of their small ruminant specialists for, I think, north of 30 years now. You had this idea. We felt that there was interest and is one of the one of the last workshops that y'all be a part of, at least as a Penn State employee, is you know, move into some different things here in work-related, you know, personal life. But uh yeah, I think well attended and in terms of reaction and results that we had of uh, knowledge gain people found it you know, significant uh you know a significant resource especially going into the winter months where we're feeding more stored feed items whether it's hay or grain so as you mentioned you attended that workshop yep. uh, what was your overall thought in going you know why did you want to sign up and then um, I guess, what was your thought of it after the fact? Well, for me, knowledge is always a good thing. And uh, definitely didn't know how. I mean, I just had a rough idea, like how you would mix forages together, or not forages, but grains or whatever, together to come up with a with a ration. But I guess maybe I hadn't thought about uh exactly how you well i have thought about it but but how you you put plug those numbers in and how you come up with it and i've looked at some of these ration balancers and they didn't make a lot of sense to me and even reading the the directions they didn't make a lot of sense to me but going through that class you know you guys put up what two or three different uh ration balancers that you could use and you literally just plug it in your numbers and uh you know, for instance, you know, you, you know the you know the energy that's in corn, the TDN, you know the protein that's in corn, and you know the protein that's in like soybean meal, and so you can just start playing around with the combinations of those two items to come up with a twelve percent, fourteen percent, sixteen percent feed. And I didn't exactly know how to do that before. And so it's always been here on, on this farm, it's always been weird. And then when we were running cattle all the time, we'd have corn, we'd have oats, we'd have spelts. Sometimes we'd have wheat. And I always wanted to know what's the best combinations of those feeds that I can make the, the best kind of a top dressing feed to, you know, feed, we were feeding corn salads back then, but you know, what we could feed that on top of it. And everybody I would talk to said, well, you can use your corn, but I'd buy beet pulp. And it was always their host want to add in all these other things that I didn't have. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, you know, some of the fun things in, 
in discussion and it, a lot of people have those same questions, Tom, that, that you just mentioned. And I think that's where, when we think about nutrition, we know the value of, of feeding those animals, whether it's in a hundred percent forage diet, uh, you know, fresh pasture and maybe some hay during those winter months for a short period of time, or we're actually mixing up some additional supplementation to give to those ewes. We all know that nutrition is important. Uh, and so we'd like to pay attention to it. And I think probably as, as livestock producers as a whole, especially sheep producers, we lack some of the, the basic skills to, to really understand what's going on. And to your point, you know, knowledge is a good thing. So, so finding a way to go out and, and educate yourself, whether it's um, just personally reading and playing around with some stuff or, or going to a a workshop, an event like that uh, can be beneficial, but, you know, looking at those combination feeds and we had a, a question at that second workshop, um, you'd mentioned some of those small grains and we get some higher crude protein values on, on a lot of those um, higher crude protein values than what we're going to have on our whole shelled corn. But the question was asked at, at the one event, like, well, if, you know, if rye, it, or I'm sorry, triticale uh, grain was 14% crude protein. And the question was, well, if it's already 14, we're trying to mix up a 14% crude protein ration. Uh, and that's a lot of times that's the first thing we look at. I'm not saying that's the right way to approach it, but we look at a feed tag, crude proteins there at the top, yep. uh, it's pretty easy to find. And the problem is if we're just evaluating off of that crude protein, are we providing enough energy? Are we providing uh, that calcium phosphorus ratio in the quantity if we're if we're going with that single feed stuff and there are some that that go together very nicely and the numbers work out uh, in a pretty clean fashion and then you know without truly balancing the ration and it's a it's a total ration we want it to be a complete ration so that we can provide all of the nutrients and meet those requirements if we don't know that we're giving up, you know, something in, in another category, then, you know, we're feeding and, and not hitting what we need to, for the, to maximize the, the production out of those ewes, out of those lambs, you know. Yeah. And that, that was one of the issues too, that came up was you have to do, if you're going to be feeding hay, you need a, you need a hay test. You need to know what that hay is that you're feeding. And for a lot of us, that gets to be difficult because we end up sourcing hay from a lot of different places. I know here in Western Pennsylvania, you know, the the recommendation always is to take uh, so many samples from so many different bales that all came out of the same field that were all baled on the same day. And here in Western PA, it's not uncommon for a hay field to only be three acres. Right. And so you're buying hay, even if you're buying it from the same producer, it might be out of eight, 10, 12, 15 different fields. Yeah. And you're not always sure when they bring the bales, you know, what 
what fields those come out of, what lots they are. And that gets to be that gets to be difficult. But I think the other thing I can uh, come up with is that you're going to have to pull some samples from a bunch of those, and you're going to have to just kind of average them out. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. You know, it's not we're not raising dairy cattle, and so you know the dairy producer can't can't get away with with buying that type of hay and mm-hmm. having the variability because it it will change yield day to day to day. Yeah. You know, so that's in that's it is a daily output that we're chasing in the dairy industry and we can't we can't afford the same feed stuff, you know, whether it's cash flow or or what the situation is uh, that we see in those those other industries. And so we tend to buy some poor quality hay compared to those other entities. And especially when we're buying in quantity, we're buying in bulk. We kind of get what we get. And uh, at least not saying it's the right mentality. Certainly this year, we went out and bought significant amount of hay compared to what we would, we would have done in previous years. And you know, very much the situation you're talking about of taking, we were purposeful on our sampling and you know, took what we felt was an accurate uh, sample across the whole set of bales. We didn't sample every single bale, but felt we had enough representation to give us the average that we that we needed to. And it's also this is not lactation quality forage, uh, right. and so just knowing kind of what I'm offering in that mid to getting into some late gestation of how much you know, the this hay should meet requirements for mid gestation, but as we move into late gestation, when we're looking at maybe adding in some concentrates before we get enough grass to really take those ewes where they need to be you know, where, what's the difference? You know, what am I left with after that hay portion of the diet? Uh, what do I need to add to to accomplish where I need to be? And that's, you know, it's important. And a lot of times I think we just buy it and we assume, well, we, we're going to spend a little bit more money because it's second cutting hay. And uh, it could be as bad or worse than some of our our first cutting, depending on how it was made and when it was made. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. The value of, and it's stuff we've all heard before. Going out and getting a, going out and getting a hay test and how important it is. But by the time you go out and whether you have the probe or you got to go to the the county office and get the probe, and then send it off and pay your thirty dollars or whatever whatever you're paying for that test. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inconvenience there's costs associated with it but it is so so important it is because it, it gives you a baseline uh, to try to go by i i know back when we were running feeder calves um you know we would feed corn silage and we went through the hassle of you know taking the cart that we were feeding you know the we would fill this cart up and then we would go you know pork that out into a you know feed bunk and we weighed like 10 of those carts, so we knew exactly, you know, what, so we had an average of what the carts weighed. And then at the end of the day, 
whatever they didn't eat, we'd sweep up, put back in the cart, run it back over to scale and see how much, you know, they weren't eating. And so we knew what we were putting in those calves. And then, you know, we could come up with a, a, a ration to put on top or a, a supplement to put on top of that, that feed. So we could have those calves growing and, you know, staying right around that two, two and a half pounds of, of growth a day. And it just seems so much harder to do with sheep because it doesn't seem it, it, yeah, it doesn't seem no matter what hay you feed, there's a going to be waste. Now, when we're feeding in a barn uh, at the bunks, you know, we can go back in and sweep up that, the hay that's left over and, and weigh that. It doesn't weigh much, but you got to wonder how much is, you know, going into the pens, you know, that they're, you know, just pulling out. And so to get that ration, just, I guess, perfect is almost impossible. It, it is difficult. And certainly the waste side of things is, you know, I remember early on uh, raising sheep, the hay waste portion was just so frustrating. Oh, and yeah. part of that was, you know, we were making a lot of our own hay. So, uh, and a lot of times I was on the wagon. So I knew what it took to harvest that, the amount of work that it took to harvest that forage and put it in the barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, with with the round bales, you know, it to the point where, you know, we still last year we fed bales and bale feeders in the pens. But the year before that, we would fork off round bales into fence line feeders because I could limit my waste. And I, the nice thing, as you start to grow and you increase sheep numbers and probably figure out what type of hay feeder you know, really works for your operation and limits waste. Uh, the more sheep you have on that bale, the the less waste you're going to have. Yeah. And you know, we're we're to the point now. As long as it's relatively decent hay, uh, in terms of palatability and and lower weed inclusion, weed inclusion in that, uh, you know, the the waste is minimal now. It, and again, that's that's it just came with the numbers yeah um, and so and you've transitioned now to feeding some large squares is that correct yep yeah we're, and, and we're mostly feeding those you know in the barn when we have sheep in the barn right do you think they would hold up outside you know, in a hay feeder no i don't know <laughs> that'd be a different kind of hay feeder okay so we use right. um we have fed them outside. Um, we take hog panels and we cut them so that they will, uh, we cut them into, you know, four pieces. Well, it takes more than two hog panels, but we'll cut those into four pieces so that they fit directly over top of that, of that bale. And, uh, you know, and they cut the strings, you know, and it, it bulges out. And that has cut down on waste. If you didn't have, I mean, if you just set that bale there with nothing around it, you'd have a mess. But um, right. but we look at that waste as part of you know our bedding, you know that we're using. But uh, yeah. but quite often with that, um, you know the holes are big enough in that that sheep will stick their heads in, 
um, and don't have an issue with it, and they will eat inside there, so they're not wasting as much. They're not grabbing it, pulling it out, you know, whatever falls out of their mouth, they're not going to, you know, go back and pick up. And, as you said, the more sheep you have on that bale, the better job they do with it. We do seem to have, you know, less waste with that. Now, feeding in the barn, you know, we have this big cart that we uh, got from Tractor Supply, and we put a bale on there. It's bale's longer than the cart, but, you know, we cut those strings and and uh, let some of that hay fall off, and then we save the strings and tie it back up. Um, and we went, you know, to another part of the barn, but, and then, you know, we count flakes and we feed that off. And then I sweep that up a couple of times a day to encourage them to eat as much of that as possible. And uh, I'm, if I, you know, if I can calculate it out right, I can get them to clean up probably better than 90% of that hay. They seem to do a pretty good job with it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's huge is the, the utilization, especially as we're buying feed in and really figuring out. And I think we're going to do an episode here in the near future on you know, forage analysis and actually dive into you know, when we're buying hay or even if you're producing your own hay, you positioning those bales where they need to be so that we can feed certain types of hay. Yeah. To me, you know, we're using that hay efficiently. You know, maybe I produce some some pretty decent first cutting hay. Well, we're going to flip the script on this. We produced some pretty good first cutting hay. We got in early and it was vegetative when we made it, meaning it hadn't headed out and gone to seed. And so we have, you know, greater level of digestion in that because it's hasn't lignified right. in, in the majority of that plant. So have some of that hay. We test it test pretty decent and then second cutting gets rained on a couple times tatted out but it's second cutting hay and it doesn't test as high but i feed my first cutting during gestation or you know during maintenance that was better hay Uh and i feed my second cutting during lactation or late gestation when really i should have flipped the two yeah Uh, and, and that's a very specific example to, to well, it's prove hard it, to, but it's hard to break that mentality. Oh, it is. And that's and how often, your whole life, you know, how often if we're putting those bales outside, you know, if we're putting them inside the ability to label them and keep track of them, you know, oh, I had yeah. a, as part of this workshop, you had some agronomy individuals come in and, and work on the, the hay test portion and, and forage quality and forage selection it was interesting you know a lot of the background is is coming into um you contributing to the dairy industry and and the comment was made because we had some questions on corn silage and if we had the facilities to feed it i would do it in a heartbeat i've talked to you know i've got a couple of cousins that are in the dairy industry yeah and I was just talking with one of them yesterday, and I said, uh, you know, probably in January, I'm going to start hitting them up for some corn silage. That, it's such a small amount. He just laughs. He thinks it's funny. Right. Yeah. How far away do you have to go to pick it up? Uh, about three miles. It's not, it certainly isn't horrible. Okay. That's not and, bad. Uh, depending on the, with corn silage, for anybody that doesn't know, the, the big thing is once it's exposed to air, 
it starts to mold. And it, it doesn't take very long, but it is dependent upon the temperature. So if you're in, if you're below the, freezing, it, it, the, the environmental temperature, right? The environmental yep. temperature. Yeah. Not the temperature of the silage, but so if you're below freezing, you could have, you know, a little pile of it sitting on a, you know, on a trailer or something and it would last three or four days. You wouldn't have an issue with it. But, uh, if it's, you know, 65 degrees out, it's going to, by the next day, it's going to have mold on it. And uh, you really need to be careful with it. But so we're, we're thinking we're just going to run up there and get a couple skid loader buckets of it and come down and fork that off into a wheelbarrow and take it in the barn and, and feed it to sheep and see if that makes, just to see if it's feasible at all. You know, right. I know. might be a lot of pulling around for nothing, but. But the, yeah, and I think, typically the, uh, I think the NDF is a lot lower in that corn silage than it is in the in a lot of your say first cotton hay, and the uh, energy should be a lot higher in that as well. Yeah, and it's crazy to me, you know, it when you're looking at corn silage, do you know what the that largest portion of energy what it should be coming from? Do you know what it should be coming from when we're cutting that whole plant? I would think it would be the corn. Yeah, it's coming from the kernel. And yeah. it's amazing to me because we're, you know, I look at a corn stalk, get the whole plant, mm-hmm. and we go through and we chop it up and essentially grind, put it into the less than two-inch pieces so it packs and ferments well. Um, and And the corn kernel makes up enough in in what they would call well-eared yeah silage that corn kernel and that the cob not the actual cob but the ear uh, the, the ear yes thank you <laughs> this is the word i'm looking for uh, makes up enough percentage of that plant's weight yeah that it actually contributes that much energy now the downside to corn silage is the the storage and the you know ease of feeding uh but also the moisture content right so we're not just feeding you know our, our four pounds as fed of dry hay mm-hmm. we have to be able to feed you know six seven pounds of corn silage depending on stage of production and what that corn silage is is testing at and and that's as fed, you know, six, seven pounds as fed. And, you know, you've got to deliver six to seven pounds to them yeah. as fed. And yeah. you're delivering. So even in your transportation, you're transporting water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and everybody knows that transporting water can get can get expensive. But I do, and this is not like people listen to this, don't take this and say, oh, they said you could do this. And. It wouldn't spoil, but I do wonder in your situation, especially because it's it's close, but you still have a little bit of travel. I'd be curious looking at some like fifty-five gallon drums, and especially when the weather's cooler, could you get it in the drums, put them on a wagon, you know, put the lid back on those drums, and how long would it? Can we can we slow down? the negative effects of oxygenating that by I, I would think you could probably slow it down but you're gonna have to pack it 
because you're going to have to pack the air out of it. And it may be more work than what it's worth. I would think. Yeah. My, my thought is, you know, they feed a TMR, so they've got a big loader. Um, you know, they're loading into that or just, well, it's just a skid loader with, you know, a fairly good bucket on it. And I'm thinking I'll just go up there in the morning when they're doing their TMR and I'll just have them dump a, a skid loader bucket on a small trailer and I'll just bring it home and feed it. Right. Now, do, are you going to feed that to open use, gestating use? or My lactation? thought is late gestation use. Okay. That's that's the thought. Um, right. And we're playing around with the idea. We've got a lot of forage that's here close to the barn, and we're playing around with the idea of, because, you know, I, I like to feed them, you know, a pound of corn per head per day, you know, 30 days before they lamb. And so we're playing around with the idea of having them on pasture, come into the barn to eat that grain and go back out on pasture. And, um, I mean, I would do that clear up until like, you know, safe window before lambing. Well, that's, exactly, from a, that, that's exactly what we're thinking of doing. That would keep us out of hay. You know, we wouldn't be feeding as much hay. Um, yeah. And then maybe with the lambing groups, then maybe we can start into the corn silage or maybe we start the corn silage a little bit before that. I don't know. It's, you know, it's an up in the air thing. We like so much everything else I do. <laughs> right. Right. And that's where, you know, you have to be, you have to be purposeful and, and have intention in stockpiling some of those forages. Yeah. If you want the ones close to the barn, I mean, I would run them to that, you know, maybe 140 days you can run them outside and then, um, it, and it's weather dependent, but you're looking at them pretty frequently and they're, they're right there outside yeah. of the barn. So if you have something that starts to go early, you can catch it before it's, you know, a disaster. Um, but I, for me, it would be more so from a, uh, I guess, two things, health, you know, getting, if my ventilation isn't as good as what I'd like it to be mm-hmm. in that barn, uh, that transmission of disease and uh, ammonia buildup, I'm going to reduce that significantly if I've got those sheep outside. Uh, the other aspect of it, exercise. Yeah. You know, those use getting out and moving. That's good for them. Yeah. You know, have, you have some friends that run some sheep that uh, also have border collies and uh, border collies that are well-trained and uh, listen. So, yeah. so the threat of to my border collie. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the threat of that border collie doing damage doesn't exist, yeah. but you know, they've, they've brought up the point that they enjoy to get those use. They enjoy getting those use out and working those use gently working, gestating, yeah. late gestating use with that dog to get some exercise on them uh, that they wouldn't be getting normally. Yep. And they're already going to have to work the dog. You know, that dog needs that job to do. So it's kind of two birds with one stone and, I think we've got the majority of sheep, especially when we're lambing in the winter, you know, and you're talking some January, February lambing, correct? Yep. So when we're thinking like those winter ewes, I think we end up getting some pretty lazy ewes in those winter groups because, Mm -hmm. you know, weather, the environment in which they're, they're sitting at. So 
uh, yeah, I think that has some value getting out on grass and, and moving. And then certainly the feed costs. The other one for me would be bedding. You know, we're buying in straw and not complaining because we can get, uh, get large quantities, relatively inexpensive. And a lot of people can, but, yeah. uh, but I still don't want to use more than I need to yeah. when we're talking about, you know, just additional expense to the operation. And, and then there's probably, I mean, it, it it's a domino effect. You know, the more manures inside, the more you have to haul more yep. often. Yep. And if those sheep go out and distribute it in the field for you, it's one less labor expense. On Absolutely. Your so, yeah, I mean, I think that sounds like a great idea. Uh, yeah, it's something we're going to try. Signage. I don't know how well it'll go, but we'll we'll see what happens. I haven't been given a price yet on the corn silage either, so we'll see how that okay. see how that plays into it. That may, yeah, that may be way more expensive than I want to do, but I've been wanting to try it for a long time. What's that? Could you start with some wet wrapped hay? Do you have access to any of that? Not at this point. I just talked to a guy. Uh, I don't know, two days ago, he was going to. He wanted $60 a bale, but he wasn't sure how many he was going to have. Okay. And were um, those round bales or big yeah, squares? I, yeah, those were rounds. Okay. Because I've, I've even thought, you know, the big squares, wet wrapped, um, you know, can we treat that as almost like a mini silage bag? Yeah. Does it stay tight enough? Can I cut that in half or in quarters as I need to and, and put that in front of there? And I think we're approaching the biggest thing is having the numbers to you know, devour that yeah. that literally devour that bale in a short period of time. Yep. That's the truth. And I think we're approaching that number, but you know, for a long time, um it's and and the average producer doesn't have the the U numbers to justify that. Mm-hmm. Um and that, you know, that makes it difficult. But that product when 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 I'm talking wrapped ham, talking actual like ensiled bales, right? right. Not necessarily the twenty eight percent moisture, uh, like in between hay, yeah. But the the forty five fifty percent dry mat or moisture content, yeah. Um, wrapped and then goes through a, a hard serious fermentation process yeah but yeah the longer you can keep those used on grass the the better you better off you are uh and then certainly you know we we were talking on that nutrition end of things the other point that was brought up when we're thinking about silage especially is taking multiple forage analysis uh forage tests mm-hmm. for feed analysis as we work through that silage, because we can't take that that nutrient test early on, that forage quality test early on, and then feed it six months later because things change. Yeah. Well, the, the, the good news with these guys is they're working with uh, nutritionists, so they're they're having tests done quite often. Yeah, and I would say the same with our hay. You yeah. Know, if we go to a hay auction and they've got a forage test from. You know, the week after it was made versus how it's going to feed nine months later. Yeah. It can, it can change a little bit. Not That's drastically. Great. Now, if we put them outside and maybe they're twine tied bales on some, some larger rounds, 
that begins to change pretty quickly. Um, yep. But it's you know something to be aware of and and consider. So you know from from that workshop, Tom, do you feel that you've got a ration that you'd like to try that you feel is balanced and you're pleased with? Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Kinda. It's it's nice. just something you just kind of mull around in the head. Uh, you know, just still thinking about it. Uh, right. I, I did like in that ration balancer, you know, you can actually put in what it costs you per pound. Yes. Um, and it gives you a it'll give you a number. Um right. and so, you know, driving home I'm thinking, well, you know, I need to look into whatever different feed stuffs I can come up with and see if if I can find a the ration that will work, give me what I want, and be cheap. So we'll just right. have to play with those numbers and see what we come up with. And we probably should mention that these are free programs, open access that they were using in the workshop and anybody has access to. Uh, and that's through, I think you can find a bunch of them on that Maryland Sheep and Goat page. Yeah. And under, I think, apps. I think there's an apps tab on there and uh the ones that we were using were the uh the ration balancer and then also the ration evaluator which are both maryland products and then the one that i use personally and and like quite a bit because it balances for the individual animal and then you just extrapolate out of that is the montana state university mm -hmm. uh, ration balancer program and that that has a login and will save your save your multiple rations, uh, and more so just from from a plan around standpoint. Yeah. It's kind of fun to throw some different things in there. I also like from a resource, and this is not a a plug for, for uh, you know their product, but I, I mean it's free. So so if you want to use it, it's out there. Uh, but it has all your nutrient requirements on those animals and so there's some other resources on there outside of yeah the balancing yeah. of the ration um we certainly you know the second one not the one you were at tom but had some interesting uh that was in the eastern part of the state of pennsylvania and so had some different you know feedstuff questions some individuals coming you're driving a little bit out of some more northeastern states uh -huh. and uh, had questions like Milo, yeah. you know, sorghum, sorghum brain, uh, because they're they're feeding quite a bit in the the poultry industry. Yeah, um, that, that's part like, of the fun of this. Is there's just a there's a lot of different options. Oh yeah, um, there's everything. And, yeah, and well, then we're, we're uh, coming up on our time here, Cam. <laughs> really, that was yeah. a fast one. Yeah, it is. So it's been good catching up with you. And uh, you like too, to everybody for listening to the Grazing Sheep podcast. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, you can. Uh, there's a Facebook page. You can leave a message there. Or you can get a hold of me at bigtomperkinsgmail.com. So uh, you have a fun rest of your day there, Cam, and we'll catch up with you later. I'm going to try. Have a good one. All right. Bye.